The scripture reading this morning will be from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 through 17. In your pew Bibles, it will be on page 1027 if you choose to read along with me. 2 Corinthians 5th chapter, verses 12 through 17. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that you may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then were all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The reading this morning has been from the King James Version. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you. It's good to have you. You being here is encouragement to us, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. Uh, First time in three weeks, we're gathering on a Sunday morning with no snow on the ground. That's kind of nice. Uh, It's easy to get in and out. And God has blessed us richly with a wonderful facility, a wonderful church family, so many wonderful blessings. And among those blessings, relationships. Uh, We're thankful that Bobby and Jennifer and Cindy are with us. We look forward to worshiping and serving together. Uh, God blesses us with relationships, and along with relationships comes responsibility. And we've been looking at responsibility of relationships all month in February. We've been asking the question, are you safe? Not just thinking about, are you safe from the standpoint of the person with which you share the relationship, but especially concentrating in the fact that the people in the relationship, are they safe with you? Are they safe in sharing a relationship with you? And today we'll concentrate primarily on the aspect of co-workers and friends. In 1983, Perry Smith entered into his workplace. He wounded two individuals and killed one. Three years later, in 1986, another individual in Oklahoma entered into a workplace of the same line of work. He killed 14 of his co-workers. This began a string of events that over 20 different instances in the same line of work, 40 individuals died. It was in 1993 that the St. Petersburg Times put for the first time in print what is now called an American slang. That is, the stress and the reaction to stress of co-workers called going postal. Now, I suppose all of us would agree with the fact that those that work with the U.S. Postal Service are not the only ones that feel stress in the workplace. They're not the only ones that have been injured in the workplace. When we think about the relationships that we share with others, are they in danger? Now, I'm not meaning only their life, their physical life is endangered. 
But let's bring it back a few degrees and let's be really honest with ourselves. If someone works with me, are they going to be injured because I mistreat them? Because I work behind their back? Because I deal in less than a person of integrity? Wouldn't it be a shame if here we call ourselves Christians and we're actually the ones that's making our workplace a more dangerous place in which to work? There's nothing easy about many of our workplaces. And so as we begin this lesson, I want to share with you some things that people have described that have made their workplaces difficult. But then after all of this background is painted, The reality is, it's still up to you and I as to whether or not we are contributors to this danger. Some have said what makes their workplace dangerous for them, injurious for them, is dealing with slackers. Dealing with individuals that are jealous. They're jealous of positions, of salary, of workstations, of offices, of tools, of company cars, etc. The friction between temps and permanents. Dealing with those other workers that are chronically injured or chronically ill. Us versus them mentality between departments or supervisors or workers. A fishbowl mentality. They're always the feeling that someone's looking over your shoulder. Overworked. Underpaid. Underappreciated. The fear of downsizing. Job loss. Increased workload. A work environment driven totally by numbers. Time and crisis, unpredictable changes, destructive communication, defensive attitude, double standards, unresolved grievances, faulty equipment, deficient deficient training, hazardous settings, co-workers who act like your boss, betrayal, and on and on the list could go. Do any of those things give you a right to injure someone else? Friends, that's a question that we really need to take to the very core of our heart today. As we'll consider in some ways this whole topic all day today. Are you safe? Even when someone mistreats you, are you a safe person in which to work? Are you a safe person to share in a friendship when you're the one that has been injured? As we consider this, I'd like you to think about this fact. You are one half of any relationship and the only one who can control you. If you share in a relationship with one other person, you're one half of that relationship. But you are the only one that can control you. So the idea that says, but they made me do it. Well, you'd do that too if you had to work with them. No. That kind of thing just won't fly in Christianity. We're responsible for us. No matter what anyone else does or says or thinks. As I was studying on this topic, I read a little illustration that John Maxwell gave in a book, Today Matters. And I thought it was so cute, but man, did it drive home the point. A little girl and her mother were going out shopping before the the massive holiday rush And as they went in and out the stores, the mother did what she always does every time that she goes shopping or really throughout the day. She began complaining. 
She complained that she had to walk so far. Couldn't they design a mall better? She complained that the stores just didn't have the quality, didn't have the quantity of the things that she needed. She complained that it was too crowded. Why couldn't people just be nicer? She complained that her feet were sore. And if you can imagine, in one particular store, she actually had a disturbance between her and a clerk. And on the way out of the store, she turns to her little girl and she says, I can't believe that. I'll never shop in this store again. Did you see that dirty look she gave me? And the little girl, in her innocence, not understanding what the mother was saying, looked up and said, Mama, she didn't give you that dirty look. You had that before you walked in the store. Friends, we can't blame our unhappiness, our ungodliness, our reaction to injure someone else on someone else. If our relationship's right with God, the rest will take care of itself every time. We're going to develop the text that's been so capably read for us all day today. I want you to notice verse 16. That's what draws us to this text. And then when we pull away from verse 16, we learn some powerful instructions that are basic principles that must be a part of our life if we're going to deal with others. But if we will, look with me in 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter in verse 16. True Christians view others differently according to Paul's words in verse 16. He says, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him, thus no longer. We'll develop that fully tonight. But by way of introduction, I want you to think about that. Paul says, I see people differently now. I view individuals in a way that I've never viewed them before. Paul, what happened? I became a Christian. Once I became a Christian, I stopped regarding individuals. I stopped viewing them in the same way. What is it that I need to learn from Paul's writing here that would help me view others in a healthy fashion? Keep in mind, this is the lesson that I can learn so that I can get in my car at the end of the day and drive home and not be stressed out no matter what happened at work. This is the lesson that I can learn that my co-workers can get in the car and they can drive home and they can't say I'm the one creating the grief in their life. This is the lesson that I need to learn if I'm going to be right with my God. What is this lesson? By way of introduction, I'd like for us to note verse 12 and 13 again as we think about whether or not we're a shallow person. Are you a shallow person? You see, there were fakes in Paul's day. As a matter of fact, there were those going around claiming to be fake apostles. And then, of course, there were the real apostles like Paul. And the real apostles had a struggle because the fake apostles accused the real apostles of being fake. And, of course, the real apostles tried to identify the fake apostles as fake. Well, how are we going to figure out who is who? Well, there was various things Paul wrote about on this, but it's interesting in this chapter how he identified this. I'd like for you to go back again with me now and read verse 12 and 13 again. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. You see, that's the shallowness there. Now notice what he goes so far as to say this in 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. 
You see what he's saying here? Paul had spent time with them. He'd lived with them in Corinth for a while. They knew Paul very well. And so he reminds them, he says, okay, you want to be able to tell the difference between a true apostle, whether or not I, Paul, am a true apostle, or whether or not they are true or false apostles? Just look at appearance and heart alone. These people are just acting an act. They're trying to appear something that if you just look into their life, it's obvious they don't live what they say. But Paul says, on the other hand, you saw me day in and day out. You know that I'm not just an appearance person. You saw the sincerity. The idea of sincerity is singleness. You saw the singleness of my mind. Now let's put a time out here and make sure we understand this because this is going to help us understand the rest of the day. Do you have a sincere heart? A singleness of heart means that a friend can do something good for you and you do the right thing. Singleness of heart means that friend does something bad toward you and you still do the right thing. It's a sincerity, a singleness of heart. An enemy hates you, you do the right thing. A friend loves you, you do the right thing. You're on the mountaintop in life, you do the right thing. You're in the valley of life, you do the right thing. Paul says, look at me. You've seen me in the good days. You've seen me in the hard days. You've seen a sincerity of heart. And also, if you want to look at my life, there in 13, he says, you're wondering what my life's about. You think maybe I'm crazy. You know what my life is all about. It's all about God. And then he uses the word sound to describe the mind, which means healthy. And remember, we're talking this month about healthy relationships. Are you safe? And he says, you want to talk about a healthy mind? You know what I've given my mind over to. I've given my mind over to helping others. What a description. Now, friends, we could spend literally all day today studying that, those uh, two verses right there. What does it mean to be healthy in relationships? Have a sincere heart. Have a life dedicated to God. Have a mind that is always thinking about how they can serve others. That's powerful. So that's the introduction. Are you a shallow person? What do we mean by that? Well, some people, they act and react based upon shallow things like looks. Oh, they, they, they're not really an attractive person. I, I'm not going to treat them the way I would if they were attractive Oh, they don't really live in the same kind of house that we live in. I, I mean, I could, you know, kind of be nice to them, but we're not going to be really friends with them because, well, they just don't live in the right house. Well, at work, I, I can't buddy up with them and go to lunch with them because they're really down the ladder from where I am. And I want to rub shoulders with the ones that are on my level or above so that I can get a promotion. What is that? It's making decisions based on appearance. It's shallow. And Paul says, look at me. You're not going to see a life based on appearance. You're going to see a life based upon a sincerity of heart, a life dedicated to God, a mind that sees others, not their things, not their titles, not them as a physical person. They're going to see them as a soul. And friends, that changes everything. So this Paul, by way of introduction, is saying, please see that I'm not shallow. Paul, how is it that you're not shallow? Give us the recipe. We'd like to be more like you. We'd like to be genuine. We'd like to be people that help others, not hurt others. What is it that we can know? Let's read the next verse. In verse 14, and the thought is concluded in 15, he says, For the love of Christ 
compels us. Note that phrase. The love of Christ, that's what we're going to study all day, compels us. Because we judged us that if one died for all, then all died. And He died for all, that those who live should no longer for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. For the love of God compels us. What does it mean by the love of God compelling us? You see there on the bottom of the screen a definition, and it involves holding. It involves arrest. Now, if you'll read writings from guys at the turn of of the last century, from the 1800s to the 1900s, they very often would use the word arrest. They'll say, read this arresting point. It's the idea of this point holds your attention. This point calls you to change your life. Now, when we think about arrest in that sense, notice the rest of this verse in verse 14 and 15. What does the love of Christ arrest us to do? It arrests us to realize that Jesus Christ is one who died for us. Now, notice that phrase in 15, that we no longer live for ourselves. Are you willing to be in subjection to this kind of love? Are you willing to be arrested to this kind of love? I no longer Live for self. Uh, wait a minute, Paul. I hate to interrupt you, but... Paul, you don't realize you won't make it in America if you don't look out for number one. If you're going to be successful in the corporate world, Paul, I know that sounds pretty on Sunday, but that's not going to work Monday through Friday. Paul, what are you thinking? You're not going to live for yourself? The Bible's never outdated It may not be what those around us live, but it's never outdated. Are you willing to go into work next week and say, I'm here to work, and it's not about me. I'm going to work for the one who is resurrected. I've been arrested by the love of Christ. Have you ever been driving down the road and you see those orange vests and they have sometime a sign on the back that says something like arrested for DUI, litter patrol? You ever seen that out on Saturdays and the individuals, they're picking up trash? And How many times have you ever went by and you thought to yourself, hmm, I guess they just got up this morning and decided they wanted to go do a public service and so they're out there picking up trash. Isn't that nice? Now, you know they're not doing that. They're doing that because they have been arrested. You see individuals out maybe around some uh, government building and, and maybe they're pouring concrete. Maybe they're doing some kind of manual labor and they have on the, the orange jumpsuits and it, it identifies that it's owned by a certain jail or a certain prison. You don't walk by that and say, I guess that gentleman got up this morning and said, hey, I'd like to go pour some concrete this morning. No. He's doing that because he's been arrested and that's what he was told that morning he would do. What does it mean to be arrested, compelled by the love of Christ? What Paul is saying is he's literally saying, I no longer decide from my fleshly and carnal nature how I'm going to deal with others. I've been arrested by the love of Christ and now the way I deal with others 
is based upon the fact that I follow the love of Christ. Well, what is the love of Christ? Turn back, if you will, to John, the 13th chapter. And as we turn back here, I almost, I want to ask you, don't read these verses as if you've read them a hundred times, like many of you have, and even more times than that. I want you to read these verses afresh. Read them anew. We're going to read two different passages where we learn about the love of Christ and how that affects us. But I want you to read these verses thinking about whether or not we ourselves have been arrested by the love of Christ. And so we ask the question, if I've been arrested by the love of Christ, how is that going to affect my life? Jesus has just washed the feet of the apostles. The one that led the Passover has now put on the towel and he's done the lowest job in the house. He's washed their feet. He's on his way after these verses we're about to read to the cross the very next day. What is between the washing of the feet and the hanging on the cross? Look, if you will, in the 13th chapter in verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, what arrested you? The love of Christ. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Lord, I've been arrested by your love. What is it that you want me to do? He says, I want you to love others. Okay, Lord, I really wanted to concentrate more on you. Uh, I'm going to repeat that, Lord. I've been arrested by your love. What do you want me to do? Okay, I want you to love others by obeying my command and by following my example so that when you love others in the same way I've commanded, in the same way I've given an example, others are going to say, you're a disciple of Jesus, aren't you? Or go to church on Sunday. Is that the definition of a disciple of Jesus? We know disciples of Jesus do go and worship on Sunday, but is that the definition? No. The Lord shows us the definition is how we deal with others, and He sandwiches this teaching of love between washing feet of those that thought they were too arrogant to wash each other's feet, and of innocently hanging upon a cross, being so mistreated, didn't deserve any of it. So what's the teaching? Let's turn over and gather a little bit more of this. Turn over a page in the Bible, John the 15th chapter. Notice in John the 15th chapter, verse 12 and 13, very similar. John 15, 12 and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friend. Lord, what is it you want me to do? I've been arrested by your love. He says, I'm telling you again, I want you to take care of each other. Not because others have treated us so well. Not because we're paying back. He says, I want you to love as I have loved you. The Lord reached out and loved us when we were unlovable. He loved us before we ever loved Him. He loved us while we were enemies of His, Romans the 5th chapter teaches. While we were sinners away from Him. And then He says, and by the way, I want the love to be to such an extent that you'd lay down your life for your friend. Friends, that's a great measure of love, especially for a co-worker that irritates us, for a co-worker that mistreats us, for a co-worker that really rubs us the wrong way, and we say, Lord, 
I want to be arrested by your love. What do you want me to do for that coworker? I want you to love them in such a way they'll know that someone that's loved by Jesus and someone that loves Jesus is working with them. Jesus was the one that taught forgiveness seven times 70. Jesus was the one that taught go the extra mile. Jesus was the one that taught the story of the Good Samaritan. Friends, all of these teachings of Jesus that shows that we are the one that is, and notice this, proactive in our love. I want you to think about a phrase as we go to this slide here. Think about the phrase proactive attitude and love. What does proactive mean? Proactive means we follow Jesus' teaching and we initiate it. This, this attitude is dangerous. Hey, can, can you stay after today? Um, I, I know it's not your responsibility, but I really need some help on, on this. And, and if you could just stay after, I'd really appreciate it. And in your mind, you say, that's cool because next week, I bet you I'm going to have to ask them to help me on something. Sure, I'd be glad to stay after. That's using someone. That's manipulative. That's not a friend at all. If we are arrested by the Lord's love, we say, sure, I can sacrifice because not what you've done for me. Because my Lord sacrificed for me. Now, friends, I'm not tweaking it here. I'm not turning. That's exactly what the Lord is teaching in 2 Corinthians 5. If we've been arrested by the love of the Lord, we take the example of the love that the Lord has given us and we show that to other people. We should never make a decision whether or not we'll do something based upon the condition. Sure, you helped me last week. I'll be glad to help you this week. No, the Lord helped me. I'll be glad to help you. I don't have to see in the distant future or in the immediate future a way that you can repay this. I want to sacrifice for you because my Lord sacrificed. I want it to be unconditional. I want it to be genuine. I want it to be pure. Now, that's proactive. But notice, it involves an attitude. Do you realize if you have a bad attitude, you can never encourage someone else? It's impossible. It's impossible with a bad attitude to be a blessing to anyone. The Lord didn't design Christians to have bad attitudes. He designed our response to be governed by agape. I want to read for you, and if you have your Bible open, you may... Uh, read along too in 1 Corinthians the 13th chapter. As we read in 1 Corinthians the 13th chapter, I want uh, you to notice the um, on the screen here, we're not going to have the, the reading itself on the screen. I want you to notice characteristics that are described here that come out of 1 Corinthians the 13th chapter. In 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4, and I want you to notice how each one of these are unconditional. We would only practice these for someone else because the Lord has first loved us. And so this is what he says. Love suffers long. So we're going to suffer long with someone, not because they deserve it, not because they've suffered long with us in the past, because the Lord has suffered long with us. And not only are we going to be patient, but we're also going to where he says, and is kind. But notice also, love does not envy. There's no, there's generosity instead. Love does not parade itself. That's humility. It's not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. That's courtesy. 
does not seek its own. That's unselfishness. It's not provoked. That's good temper. Thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. That's guilelessness. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. That's sincerity. That's that singleness. I'm going to really believe the best about you as much as I can believe it. I'm going to hope the best for you as much as I can hope it. But notice the conclusion of this. He says, endures all things. Love, it's this agape, never fails. Someone in the workplace creates a hostile environment. What's our reaction? Because God has arrested me with the love of Christ. I choose to be proactive and agape you. Others in the workplace won't understand it. But you know what they'll say? They won't ever say, you're shallow. They'll admire that kind of conviction. They'll admire that kind of understanding of relationships and that kind of depth. We choose our reaction. And as we close, I want you to just think about this. The sad thing is sometimes we choose to be unhappy. We choose to do the wrong thing. One time in a, in a Peanuts cartoon, Lucy was complaining about how terrible she felt and her little brother Linus came along and said, I'll help you. And he puts her in a chair and he gets the TV in front. And he says, now, what show you want? He gets it on the show once. Hey, I'll fix you a snack. And he goes and he gets a snack. He says, what do you want? Here's a sandwich. Here's a cookie. Have, have, have I not brought you anything you wanted? She says, oh, you've brought everything. Is there anything I haven't thought of? And you know how Lucy can be. She says, well, yes, there's something you haven't thought of. You haven't thought about the fact that I don't want to be happy. How many of us we could say, yeah, there's something you haven't thought about. I don't want to be like Christ. I like having an attitude. I like holding a grudge. I fuel off the fact that I can stab somebody in the back and I can seek revenge. And friends, as long as that's our attitude, we'll always be controlled by others. Our responses will always be controlled. And we'll always have a dangerous relationship to share. Arrested by the love of Christ. It changes everything because He changes us. This morning, if you've never been baptized into Christ for remission of sins, this would be a wonderful morning to turn it all over to Him. To let Him control every aspect of your life. If you're a believer willing to repent of sins and confess before men... Won't you be baptized into Christ? Maybe you've been baptized into Christ and along the way someone other than Christ has controlled your life and controlled your relationships and you want to come back home. Home to a relationship with God and home to a relationship that is what it ought to be with others. Arrested by the love of Christ. If we can help you in any way, come.